let it be our prayer, all of us, that God, Jesus, would abide in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that you have given us to come to your holy temple to be able to learn more about you and learn more about what we need to do as we navigate these last days. We thank you for the sure word of prophecy, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, and you th we thank you for your protection as well. And as we are about to open your word, we pray that we may be able to learn, retain, and apply this knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The subject for this morning, the title, as you can see on the screen, is The Return of the Romans. And today we're going to be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But before we get to the destruction of Jerusalem, we're going to be talking about why is it that God had to bring judgments upon Jerusalem. Because it's like where I'm from, the part of the world I'm from, uh, kids still get spanked. So if someone gets into your house and your mom or your dad is spanking you and they will not be able to give a reason, then they won't understand what's happening because they would think that um, your mom or your dad is a terrible par parent. But if they get to know why the spanking is happening, then they will be able to know that it's justified. So our God is a God of mercy and a God of love, but the enemy wants to paint this picture of God that he's an exacting God. He's just waiting to destroy his people, which is not true. So we're going to find out in the word of God why the children of Israel got to this point. So let us open our Bibles to the book of, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. The verse is also on your screens, but I love to hear those pages of the Bible turning. It shows that um, we are students of the Bible. If you have somewhere to write, please write these references and be able to go back and study them when you go to, to your houses. Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So that means that everything that we're going to learn from the Bible, even the Old and the New Testament, it doesn't only apply to that time, but it also applies to us, so that we will not, re will not do the same mistakes, and also we can learn what God wants us to do. So let us go back to our scripture reading for this morning. We saw that Jesus said... Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, the Bible says. So this time Jesus is looking upon the city, and he, has, he had just been celebrated as the coming king on the triumphant entry. And the whole Israelite nation is hoping to see a savior who's going to help them probably rebel against the, the Roman Empire and also have an empire on this planet earth. But we know from the Gospels that Jesus said, no, 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 my kingdom is not like that. So after the triumphal entry, Jesus is looking over and seeing Jerusalem and seeing the temple, and he weeps. Why is Jesus crying? You'll be tempted to think probably Jesus is crying because he is seeing the agony that was ahead of him. He's seeing, of course, the lambs being slain. He's also seeing... Uh, the sheep gate, also seeing Calvary, and he knows that Gethsemane was very close. But Jesus is not crying about that. Who is the better person to ask why Jesus is crying rather than Jesus himself? Look at the, what the Bible says in verse 44, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Jesus goes on to say, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation." So you'll be thinking, why such harsh words or why such a judgment Jesus is bringing upon Jerusalem? 
So if we go to the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, we see Daniel being given the prophecy of his people because in Daniel chapter 8, when this prophecy had begun to be unveiled unto him, he fainted. So the prophecy didn't get to be finished and the interpretation of that vision. So Gabriel comes back in chapter 9 after Daniel had been praying and Daniel is given this interpretation of the dream. In verse 24, the Bible says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Holy One. So we know from Bible prophecy, if we break down 70 weeks, it becomes 490 days. And if you're a student of prophecy, a day is equal to a year. So those were 490 years. And this time period was supposed to start or culminate from the decree that Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, gave to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So for 490 years, the children of Israel were given a task to do. They were supposed to do all these things that are listed on the screen. But when Jesus comes, they had not done any of them. In fact, they had grown worse and worse in their iniquity, and because of that, they had engrossed themselves in sin and rebellion, both against God and against the Roman Empire. So Jesus was not happy about that, and God was not happy about that. And Jesus, seeing what, where they were going and the trajectory of their actions, he, he, he declares these statements that we have read in Matthew chapter 24. So if we go on, Matthew chapter 23, we will have a more, a more detailed explanation of their sins. It says here, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill. If you're a student of the Bible, you see that the prophets, when they came with the message from God, they would always say, you have done this. You have done this. Rarely did they say, you will do this. That's the reason why you will get this. But there's so many circumstances they would say that. But why is Jesus here saying you will kill the prophets, yet he's not saying you have killed the prophets? If you go to the same chapter before this passage, 34 to 38, I didn't put it on the screen, you'll find Jesus saying that you say we are better than our fathers, because you whiten the tombs of your fathers and say, we haven't killed the prophet. You whiten the tombs of, of the prophets, rather, because we didn't kill the prophets. We make these tombs beautiful. Therefore, we are different from our fathers. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You are actually worse than your fathers because you are going to persecute my people. So let's apply this for a moment to us today. You know, we can give names of pioneers to roads, to hospitals, to institutions, and we can celebrate their names today, but if the spirit of the pioneers is not in our, in our, in our hearts, we are far from God's will, and we are not in any way, shape, or form better than those who gave the pioneers a hard time. So God is saying... You will kill the, the prophets. You will kill my people. And it goes on to say here, and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And the Bible goes on to say, Jesus cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her children under her wings, but you were not willing. One thing about God, God doesn't force anyone. When Jesus was here on this planet Earth, when he lived on this earth in Israel, he had one purpose, to reconcile humanity to God. And that was also evident in what he spoke and what he said to the children of Israel. But he respected their will, but that does not mean that he endorsed their will. 
So he's saying, I came and I wanted to gather you together, but you rejected, you pretty much rejected me. And in that same, in that same passage, Matthew 23, verse 34 to 38, I think this is verse 38. He says, see, your house is left to you, what? Desolate. Why is Jesus saying your house is left to you desolate? Let's talk about this house, this temple a little bit. So the temple that was in Jerusalem was the temple that was rebuilt in the times of Ezra. The first temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar because of the iniquity of the children of Israel. Jesus, or God, used Nebuchadnezzar to take the people to exile so that they may learn the principles of God and to obey him. So when they came back, they were able to rebuild the temple according to the decree that we have talked about. So when the temple was being rebuilt, we know that there were different feelings about this temple. It says here in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12, but many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the, of the, of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud for joy. And if you're a student of uh, spiritual prophecy and the student of Bible, you know that Ellen White does not endorse their crying. The Spirit of God tells us that they should have been grateful that God had given them an opportunity to rebuild the temple. But Haggai, the prophet Haggai, has something very contrary to that verse. Haggai chapter 2 verse 7 the Bible says, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Now I have a question for you. Who is the desire of all nations? Jesus. We actually have a book in the, a book in the spirit of prophecy that is titled, The Desire of What? The Desire of Ages. So basically, Haggai is saying the desire of ages, meaning to say, Jesus, God had seen the cry of the elders, and he's giving a promise that this temple, I will fill it with glory. And it goes on to say, says the Lord of hosts, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So here Haggai is bringing a message from God, having seen the cry of the elders, and he's giving an assurance that this latter temple was going to be more glorious than the, the former temple. Then the question arises, why was it going to be more glorious? How was this going to happen? Yet this temple that was being rebuilt, the Ark of the Covenant was not there. Even when it was dedicated, there was no glory of God that came and shone upon the temple then how was it going to be more glorious than the former temple? The pen of inspiration tells us that the second temple was not honored with the cloud of Jehovah's glory, but with the living presence of one whom, whom dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, who was God himself manifest in the flesh, the desire of all nations. See that she's quoting from the passage that we read in Haggai had indeed come to his temple when men of Nazareth taught and healed in the sacred courts. In the presence of Christ and in this only did the second temple exceed the first in glory, but Israel had put from her the preferred gift of heaven. So this is the reason why Jesus is saying, your house is left unto you, desolate because the one who was supposed to make this house more glorious was rejected by the nation of Israel you remember that after Jesus had proclaimed that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed when he cried for the city he went into the temple and he pretty much cleared all the exchange that was happening in the temple and he taught in the temple courts and they pretty much rejected him so it is my prayer this morning that your house will not be left desolate. You remember that the Apostle Paul says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus would like to dwell in you. But if you keep on rejecting him, 
then Jesus has no choice. Because Jesus wants to destroy sin, but if you keep on holding on to sin, when he comes for the second time, sin is going to be destroyed, and you pretty much get destroyed together with sin. It's my prayer that this statement will not be true in your personal life. It is also my prayer that this statement will not be true to us as Seventh-day Adventists. That will take heed of God's word that his glory will remain in us and with us and will be with him for eternity. Jesus will, will go on uh, to give more detail about how all these things were going to transpire. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 and verse 2. Now this is a familiar subject. And Jesus, it says here, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus had previously said there is no stone that is going to be left on top of another, but the disciples did not get it. And they came to Jesus and they showed him how beautiful this temple was. Even, it's, even if its physical beauty was not compared to the first one, they were still proud about the temple and proud of their own doing. And it says, the disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be, that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus is giving them many, many warnings. He's saying the temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. There's one other, one other, he goes on to describe how these things were going to play out. Of course, he told them about rumors of wars. And in this same chapter, we get a dual, a dual, a dual proclamation of the prophecies of God, one upon the destruction of Jerusalem and one upon the ends of the world. If you read the same chapter, you see that there are some things that uh, were, apl were applicable literally to Israel, then and there are some things that could only be fulfilled after the time of Israel. So Jesus would go on to give them a more prominent sign of the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. The Bible says, Therefore, when you see the, the what? When we see the what? The abomination of what? Of desolation, spoken by who? By Daniel the prophet. Standing where? In the holy place. Now those words that are written in parentheses, they were supplied by, 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 by the translators, but they are in context. Whoever reads, let him understand. And then Jesus would go on to give specific instructions to his, to his people about what they were supposed to do. If you go, I didn't put the verse here up on the screen, but if you go back to... Daniel chapter 24 from verse 25 to verse 27 and also Daniel chapter 8 verse 23 to verse, verse 26. You might be wondering, what, who is this abomination of desolation? If you're a student of Bible prophecy, you already know that this is the, this is the Romans, the Roman Empire. But if you would like to have a more a, a, a more solid answer from the Bible, you go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 23 to verse 26, that talks about this abomination of desolation coming after the Grecian Empire, which we know from history that the power that comes after the Grecian Empire is the power of the Romans. So Jesus is warning his people, the disciples, and also the Christian church, that when you see the Romans stand in the holy place, the holy place we know that a literal local which was being referred to here was Jerusalem itself. Let the reader understand and let the reader take heed of the prophecies of God. So friends, we do have a sure word of prophecy by which we do good when we take heed of it. And God says in Amos chapter 3 verse 7, God will not do anything without revealing it to his servants, the, the prophets. So God loves us so much that he tells us of things that are about to come before they come to be. So 40 years elapsed before the actual destruction of, uh, of Jerusalem happened and all the prophecies that we saw in Matthew chapter 23 that they were going to persecute God's people, they were fulfilled. 
If you go to, back to the book of Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 7, you start by seeing Paul persecuting the church. And in Acts chapter 8, you see the church being persecuted and being scattered abroad. That worked out to the benefit of the church because the gospel was taken to all the nations. God used that which was intended to kill the church to spread the gospel, which was, which was the, the, the application of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God would turn that which is made for, for, to destroy you into, into good. But the nation of Israel was persecuting God's people as Jesus had predicted. It goes on to say here, the book Great Controversy, 1888, page 30, paragraph 1. It says, all the predictions given by Christ concerning the destruction of Jerusalem were fulfilled to what? To the latter. The Jews experienced the truth of his words of warning. The Bible says God does not lie. What does this tell us? It tells us if the destruction of Jerusalem, everything that God said to them and everything that he warned them, if everything came to pass, it shows us that everything that God, that Jesus prophesied about our time is going to be fulfilled to the latter. So what are we then to do if it is going to be fulfilled? God does not lie. We are to take heed of what he has said we should do. One of my favorite verses is about the sons of Issachar. They knew the times, and they also knew what Israel ought, ought to do. So 40 years lapsed before the actual destruction of Jerusalem. You remember they were given 409 years to do all those things that we read from Daniel. And they sealed their rebellion, or their probation was sealed by the stoning of Stephen. But God still gave them more years before the actual destruction would come. Isn't God merciful? Isn't God a loving God? He gives us ample time to repent. In AD 68, the Romans would come, and exactly as Jesus would, had said, the Romans came because of the rebellion that was happening in Israel to punish them and to bring them back into submission. There were several battles that were fought in different cities and towns. The man who was leading these, the, the Roman armies, his name was Cestius, according to the spirit of prophecy, but if you go online, there's different names for this, for this army general. One of the battles that I remember is the battle that was fought in Galilee. The reason why I remember this battle is it was prominent because one of the leaders in Israel, his name was Gamaliel, he was a rebel leader, of course. And you would see Josephus actually pleading with the Jews to surrender to the Romans because they were not going to win against, against the Romans. So they put up this siege around the, the city. And for some reason, notice what the spirit of prophecy says. Great Controversy, 1888, page 30, paragraph 2, he says... Signs and wonders appeared foreboding disasters and doom. This was just right before the, the siege. In the, in the midst of the night, an unnatural light shone over the temple and the altar. Upon the clouds at sunset were pictured chariots of men of war gathering for battle. The priests ministering by night in the sanctuary were terrified by the mysterious sounds the earth trembled, and a multitude of voices were heard crying, Let us depart thence. The great eastern gate, which was, so heavy, which was so heavy that it could hardly be shut by a score of men, and which was secured by immense bars of iron fastened deep in the pavement of solid stone, opened at midnight without visible agency." God was giving them more signs and wonders for them to see that doom and destruction was close. But they did not take heed. It goes on to say here, the spirit of prophets tells us, this is one of the most beautiful statements upon this whole destruction of Jerusalem. It says here, not one Christian did what? Perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. Christ had given his disciples warning and all who did what? 
who believed his words, watched for the promised signs, when he shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, and said Jesus, then know that the desolation is, the, def, the desolation therefore is nigh. So my dear brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, it pays to obey the word of God. There is destruction that is going to come. There's going to be a time of crisis that is coming very soon. But all those who believe in God are not going to be destroyed. They might sleep, but they have the hope of the resurrection morning. And those who are going to be alive to see all these things unfold, they're going to be in the clasp, in the hand of God, protected from all these things that are going to fall upon the earth. Amen? Amen. So it is my appeal this morning that you will not harden your heart. If God has been showing you the areas of your life that you need to change, of course, through the power of Jesus Christ, take heed to his words. Don't reject. Don't harden your hearts this day. Take heed of God's word and do exactly what he wants you to do. It pays to obey the word of God. No Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. But you know, as we read the history of this time in Israel, there were factions, and Israel, there was division. This is one of the reasons why they were so weak, they could not withstand the Roman armies, of course, but we know that the word of God had said it, they couldn't resist. But one of the reasons why they were so weak is because they were so divided. There were a lot of factions in Israel, and there were civil wars in Israel, by the time the enemy came against them, they were so weak that they could not stand. And we read here from history.com, it says, in fact, disorder, fear, and exhaustion were the Romans' constant companions in the Jewish war. As the, as the detailed narrative of Josephus, this is the man that was working now on the side of the Romans, that gives us an account of the destruction of Jerusalem, because you don't see this account in the Bible. You only see the prediction of it. It says, Roman, Roman training and discipline were certainly admirable and in comparison to that of Josephus' countrymen. So that which was a weakness of the children of Israel became a strength for the Romans. So my dear friends, I want to appeal to you. There's so many differences in the church today, but if we stay like that, we are not going to stand in the last days. There is different, different views, and on some things that we're very confident about in our history and in our, within the time our pioneers were bringing these messages, of course, inspired by God, some things that we believed very confidently and we were sure of, we find so many people now coming up and doubting all those things, the pillars and the foundations of our message, which is sad. And these things are dividing us, the different views. But you can see from that quotation from historynet.com that that which was a weakness in Israel became a strength for the Romans. Because the Romans were organized and unified, and Israel was divided and had so many factions. The spirit of prophecy, I'm jumping ahead of myself here, it says when the second siege came and the destruction came, the Jews or Israel had enough reserves before to last them years that they could have survived the siege. But because of these civil wars, they had destroyed their own reserves. So we don't do good to ourselves when we fight against each other. Let us be united in Christ, not to be united in sin. Amen? It goes on to say here about that siege, the first siege. After the Romans under Cestius had surrounded the city, they unexpectedly abandoned the siege when everything seemed favorable for an immediate attack. The besieged despite despairing of successful resistance were on the point of surrender when the Roman general withdrew his forces without the least apparent reason. But God's merciful providence was directing events for the good of his own people. Amen? Amen. God was willing to give them more time. The siege was abandoned. 
If you read more about the reasons why the siege was abandoned, Nero was not a good emperor. He had his own issues. There was, there, there, there was unrest in Rome during that time. And we are told that Nero, Nero ended up taking his life. And when all the commotion was happening, the general that was leading this siege, he was going to be appointed as the next emperor. And we are told as well in the spirit of prophecy that the Israelites themselves, they even made it so hard for the Romans to retreat. They actually chased after them and they thought they, they were having victory. And the Romans finally retreated and finally went back to Rome. Look at what the spirit of prophecy said about what their actions, about their actions. Great Controversy, 1888, page 31. It says, yet this apparent success brought them only, only evil because this was, a, this was supposed to be a warning for them to depart from Jerusalem and to go to the mountains. It inspired them with that spirit of stubborn, of stubborn resistance to the Romans, which speedily brought unutterable woe upon the doomed city. What a sad picture. What a sad picture. Because this was their opportunity to depart and to go out of Jerusalem. The Romans, it is one of the saddest chapters in the, in the history of Israel. Because now Titus was the general and he comes to Jerusalem with determination that was unequaled. Because of the rebellion of the Israelites, they came and they sieged the city. And the siege was so bad that there was so much hunger inside the city. And those who wanted to escape the city to go on top of the walls and go out, were told that the Romans would take them one by one and erect crosses on Calvary until there was no space for crosses on Calvary. There was a heap of dead people outside the city, and it was an ugly picture. And finally, the Romans broke through, and they went into the city to destroy it. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of prophecy, tells us that Titus himself wanted to save the temple because he understood that the temple was God's sacred place, and he wanted to leave the temple. So he told his armies, don't touch the temple. But because they were so furious about this rebellion, one of his soldiers flung fire onto the temple and it was ablaze. There were some people who had taken refuge in the temple and they went in and they killed all the people that were in the temple until blood was flowing out of the temple like water. You know, I wouldn't want to keep on describing the scenes of the destruction of Jerusalem because they're a sad picture of a people who could have done better. Jerusalem was destroyed. The whole city was on fire. The spirit of prophecy gives us here a description of what was happening. It says, it was an appalling spectacle to the Roman. What was it to the Jew? She poses a question. The whole summit of the hill which commanded the city blazed like a volcano. You can, you can see the terrible picture that she's painting here of what was happening. One after the, uh, another, the buildings fell in with a tremendous crash and were swallowed up in the fiery abyss. The roofs of cedar were like sheets of flames. The, the gilded pinnacle shone like, like spikes of red light, the gate towers sent up, uh, sent up tall columns of flame and smoke. What a picture. What a picture of things that could have been prevented by obedience, but the Israelites did not obey. Now you might be thinking, this was Israel. How does this apply to us? How, page 464 to 465, it says here, it is no time, this is the quotation that is in your bulletin, it is no time now for God's people to be fixing their affections or laying up their treasure in the world. 
It goes on to say, the time is not far distant when, like the early disciples, we shall be forced to seek a refuge in desolate and solitary places. And this, as the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for flight to the Judean Christians, so the assumption of power on the part of our nation in the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. So she's pretty much saying these things are applicable to us even unto today. Notice the date when it was written. I put that date in parentheses for a reason. It was in 1885. If you're a student of Adventist history, you know that three years later in 1888, there was a message that came to the church, which was the message of righteousness by faith which is Jesus himself. And we know for sure from that Minneapolis general conference session, the church did not accept the message that came through A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner and backed by Ellen White herself. Now there's different views in the church about that message, if it was a message from God or not. But here is why I'm very confident. Because she says if that message had been accepted, then the end could have come around that time. And how do we know? The fall of that year in 1888, we see things escalating about what we have been told about our nation about to enforce the Sunday laws. There was a bill which was called the Blair Bill, and it was about to be enforced. That Sunday observance was about to become law in the United States of America. Of course, there was different denominations, denominations including the Seventh-day Baptists and other denominations including the Seventh-day Adventists that fought against the Blair Bill. But we know for sure that these things were escalating, and in 1888, we were about to see the enforcement of the Sunday Law. So this was a warning that she had given in 1885. When you see these things starting to happen, just remember the first siege of Jerusalem and start living your lives differently. And we know for sure from history that that bill did not pass. God was merciful to us, and God gave us, kept on repeating throughout his dialogue with A.T. Jones. I want to encourage you as well to find that dialogue. It is published in a small booklet that is called The National Sunday Law. You will see that Senator Blair kept on saying, for the common good of the people. We are going to enforce the Sunday observance for the common good of the people. And if people reject it and those who will be against it, they won't be taking care of their neighbors. And the law was going to deal with them. And if you see today, that same language is starting to get back. For the common good of the people, do this so that you take care of, the, of your neighbor or your brother. There's nothing wrong of, by taking care of your neighbor. But if these things start to encroach on the side of the commandments that are between you and God, which the civil government has no power to make laws over, then it becomes a problem. So these things are starting to happen. You're starting to hear the language. And if you go and just Google the Sunday laws of the day of rest that the papacy is advocating, you see that things are escalating very fast. The clouds are gathering, my dear brothers and sisters, but remember, not one Christian who took heed of the gospel of Christ or the warnings of Christ perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. And the pen of inspiration goes to say, it will, be, it will then be time to leave the large cities preparatory to leave the smaller ones for retired homes in secluded places among the mountains. And now, instead of seeking expensive dwellings here, we should be preparing to move to a better country, even a heavenly country. Instead of spending our means in self-gratification, we should be starting to economize. God has blessed this country with resources and means, and he has blessed a lot of us with means and with things that we can use to make life better. But you know, Satan takes advantage of, our, of the blessings that God has given unto us. Sometimes we don't see our need for studying the Bible, watching YouTube, watching the television, watching t Netflix. 
using the blessings that God has given us in wrong places. We use our money in investing in self-gratification, and the pen of inspiration is telling us that we should change our ways. The greatest investment that I appeal to you to invest in is the heavenly, the heavenly country, which is the greatest investment. The greatest investment is not in Bitcoin. The greatest investment is not on the stock market or in real estate. The greatest investment is in heaven itself because we know for sure that all these things are going to be destroyed and Jesus is coming very soon. Now, what God is going to tell you how to, to implement these things, you must approach these things with a balanced with a balanced approach because I have friends from my country, from Zimbabwe, after reading these quotations about fleeing to the mountains, they didn't take thought of the process that it was supposed to take and they went into the mountains. The first week, they ran out of food and before the month ended, they went back into the city and they were so discouraged. So this is not room for presumption. This is room for step by step knowing that the spirit is leading and gradually doing things that God has said we should do and learning skills that will actually help us to be able to spread the gospel in the last days as tent makers, but not self-preservation. Because if we do all these things for self-preservation and go into secluded places not for the spreading of the gospel, then we are serving, we are serving self rather than serving God. The pen of inspiration goes on to give a more direct application. She says, the Savior's prophecy concerning the visitation of the judgments upon Jerusalem is to have another fulfillment, of which that terrible desolation was but a faint shadow. I was, I was pretty moved when I read this quotation. Friends, what happened to Jerusalem back then is going to be repeated. And this terrible desolation was but a faint shadow. Now, this is not to scare you, but this is to move you a little bit so that you don't get comfortable in all these things that are happening in this world because things are escalating and God loves you so much. That's the reason why he gives us a warning. God is merciful and God is love. He warns us before all these things come to play. There's going to be the final trouble, the final Jacob's trouble that is coming, there's going to be small troubles that are coming, escalating to that final trouble, but we are told that there is no Christian that perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. It goes on to say, but in that day, uh, excuse me for, for that typo, um, but in that day, as in the time of Jerusalem's destruction, God's people will be what? Will be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written among the living, that is in the book of life, Christ has declared that he will come the second time to gather his faithful one, to gather what kind of people? His faithful one. And the Bible says when the Son of Man comes, will he find Will he find faith? The last quotation before we close. It says here in the same book, Great Controversy, 1888, page 38. It says, the world is no more ready to credit the message for this time than were the Jews to receive the Savior's warning concerning Jerusalem. Come when it may, the day of God will come unawares to the, to the ungodly. When life is going on in its and varying round when men are absorbed in pleasure, in business, in traffic, in money-making, when religious leaders are magnifying the world's progress and enlightenment, and the people are lulled in a false security, then as the midnight thief steals within the unguarded dwelling, so shall sudden destruction come upon the careless and ungodly, and they shall not escape. I want to bring your attention to the statement that she says there, religious leaders preaching messages that will allow people into their sin and promising them false security. 
In the book of Jeremiah, the Bible promises us that God says, I will send you pastors after my own heart, and they shall lead you in all parts of righteousness. So it is my appeal to you, and it is a, my appeal to ministers of the gospel who are in here and who are watching through via live stream as well, to be ministers of God that are not going to only preach comfort comforting messages, comforting messages in the wrong, on the wrong side of lulling the people of God in their sin and promising false security because God is not like that. God is a God of comfort and peace. He sends us the Holy Spirit to comfort us, but God is also a God of justice. When we remain attached to sin, God will come to a point where he says, not anymore. But he warns us ahead of time, as I said in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, God says he will not do anything on this planet earth without warning us, without giving his message to his servants, the prophets. So if you're a minister of the gospel in this room or watching via live stream, be sure to preach what God wants you to preach to his people so that they will not be comfortable in sin. And the people of God, it is my appeal this morning that we will not make investment in self-gratification. We'll take heed of the word of God so that when this final crisis is going to fall upon us, of which I believe with all my heart as a student of Bible prophecy, that that time is not far away. That time is very, very near. And we should change the way we do things and start to see the things that we should put in order so that when Christ comes or before his coming, when the crisis is going to fall upon us, we will be ready and prepared. Let us take heed of the word of God. As we sing this last song, I want you to pay attention to the words of this song. This song is calling our hearts to look forward to the soon coming of Christ and is giving us encouragement that our Christ is coming very soon. I believe with all my heart and I'm very excited. I don't know about you, but I'm excited that finally we're getting close to the coming of Christ. And Jesus has chosen you and I to fulfill Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, which says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be what? Shall be preached into all the nations and into all the world for a, for a witness. And then the end will and the end would come. God did not choose Paul to finish this work. God did not choose Jeremiah to finish this work. God did not choose all the Bible heroes that we find in Hebrews chapter 11 to finish this work. But God has entrusted his last message, the three angels' message, to you and I. Now you might be thinking, why is it that God has trusted this message to a generation that seems to be so weak? But God promised in the book Great Controversy chapter, the, the chapter is talking about the modern day revival. It says, before the final visitation of God's judgment upon the earth, there is going to be a revival of primitive godliness such as never was during the apostolic times. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful promise? So I'm looking forward to that revival. As we sing this closing song, let us contemplate upon the message. May God bless the reading of his word.
pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much because you love us. That is the same reason you give us warnings and you give us ample time to prepare. And as the song has said, Lord, you are coming very soon. And the mystery is about to be finished. And Lord, we cannot wait to see you in the clouds when we are going to be reunited with those who are sleeping in the graves. And we cannot wait for that blessed hope. And Lord, we want to pray as we have read from the scriptures that no Christian was destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem, we pray that we may take heed of the gospel and of your warnings so that we will not be destroyed in the crisis that is going to come and that we will be ready to meet you in the clouds and help us to fulfill the great commission which is to spread the gospel to all the world for a witness and starting with our neighbors, starting where we are in Jerusalem. And I want to pray that as we go by our day to day, may you keep us Keep our minds stayed upon your things since it's the Sabbath day, and I want to praise you that we will be able to learn and retain and apply this knowledge that you have given us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.